everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so honored that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am joined by Eric Barker, and we're going to be talking with him about his brand new book called Plays Well with Others. And it's all about relationships. In fact, uh, the subtitle of it is The Surprising Science Behind Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly wrong. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about Eric and about the book here in just a second. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do want to let you know that there's three things that drive a lot of what we do here on the podcast. The first is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because you can't just have a conversation with anybody about anything. And that can lead to uh, just a lot of tension in the rela- in the relationship or the friendship or or whatever uh, relationship you might be in. The second one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. That everyone has something to teach us, that we can learn something from everyone. And in some cases, it's learning from their example of what to do. In other cases, it's learning about their failures and what they didn't do and learning from their example of what they got wrong. And the last one is this, is that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of what that thing is, because everything has something to teach us. Everything has something that we can learn from. Now, this book uh, that I'm going to tell you about is all about relationships, and one of the things that really... Uh, drew me to it is one there's a lot of uh, science and research into it which always uh, makes the reading process a little bit more enjoyable for me because it's more backed up by data and facts and not necessarily just someone's opinion though books that are someone's opinion and perspective can be interesting too but he gets into a lot of common things that we might say are true in here and you know we're going to get into uh that in our conversation but getting into things that are commonly held as i guess commonly held beliefs that we all hold as it pertains to relationships and there were several that got me thinking about uh that and i'll you know talk a little bit more about those you know in the outro but Yeah, we're going to dive into the conversation here in just a second. However, I do want to mention that if you have something that you would love us to cover on the podcast or someone that you would love us or recommend that we talk to, I would love to hear from you. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you aren't subscribed, subscribe to the podcast. I'm doing a few Uh, extra episodes throughout the summer just because I'm way far ahead and I want to get these uh, episodes out as quickly as uh, as possible and so yeah now let me tell you a little bit about Eric and then we will dive right into my conversation with him Eric Barker is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling Barking Up the Wrong Tree which has sold over half a million copies and has been translated into 19 languages Over 500,000 people have subscribed to his weekly newsletter, and his work has been covered in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Financial Times, and others. He is a sought-after speaker, has given talks at MIT, Yale, Google, the United States Military Center Command, and the Olympic Training Center. Another fun fact is that he was even the subject of a question on Jeopardy 
as well. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Eric Barker. Well, Eric, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Uh, it's great to be here, man. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, um, you know, you've uh, recently released this brand new book called Plays Well with Others. And, you know, it's all about um, relationship advice and, you know, l- helping us learn about what what me, what uh, what we might get wrong about relationships. And I would just be curious to hear from your perspective of was there like an incident or something that made you go like, yeah, I. I need to look into this more and maybe find out what's the truth about relationships and how they work. I mean, I've never been really good with relationships, never <laughs> been my forte. That was part of the thing that got me, got yeah. me writing this. And, uh, and then crazy enough, literally two weeks after I closed the deal to write the book, uh, California, where I live locked down for the pandemic. So I, I realized I wasn't the only one who was yeah. probably going to need some, assistance but the the thing is it's like i you know i i think a lot of the maxims that you know we grow up with around relationships you know we don't know if they're true or not you know does love conquer all you know can you know as a friend in need a friend indeed and i think we get advice and a lot of relationship books you know uh have all the scientific accuracy of a magic eight ball they're they're kind of tell us what we want to hear and so i wanted to get to the science of it. I, I, like I said, I personally wasn't qualified to give advice. So I wanted to look at the scientific research and try try and get us legitimate answers. I needed it. And I think coming out of the pandemic, we, we probably all need it. Yeah. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about kind of what that journey looked like for you. I mean, just reading an enormous amount of research. Each chapter was a was a different challenge. Uh, you know, the the key thing with uh, you know, uh, looking at love and marriage is that there's an enormous amount of research, uh, and just, you know, trying to get through it all is, is, you know, is a Herculean effort. And then with, you know, friendship, frankly, there's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of formal discussion about it. So really trying to dig and find was, was really tricky, but you know, what I, what I did find was really insightful. Yeah. Any thoughts on why there maybe may not be a ton of stuff in in friendship um i mean because this is it's a trend across the board in the sense that i you know as i talk about in the book like friendship doesn't get the respect it deserves Uh, you know Nobel prize winner daniel kahneman has done research and friends make us happier than any other relationship uh you know daniel hushka who's a uh, anthropologist at asu found that you know friend is used more than any other relational term in the english language even more than mother and father and yet you know if if you don't if you don't speak to your spouse for you know two months uh you, you can expect divorce papers if you don't talk to your boss for two months you're going to get fired you know if you don't handle your kids for two months or you know you're going to go to jail but if we don't speak to our friends for two months you know whatever man you know it's like we we friendship doesn't have an institution backing it it doesn't have this mm-hmm. metaphorical lobbying group and that's really friends kind of you know kind of don't don't get the attention they deserve given how much happiness they bring us and you know repeated studies have shown you know women recovering from breast cancer a spouse didn't make a difference but the number of supportive friends they did did you know predict health with men recovering from a heart attack a spouse didn't predict recovery but friendship did friendship's so powerful but here's the thing one of the reasons why friendship makes us so happy and has such a profound effect on us 
is because unlike those other uh, relationships, you know, like uh, marriage, employment, uh, friendship is completely vol voluntary. There's no obligation. You know, we're, we, we hang out with our friends because we like them. And so what renders friendship pretty fragile is also what proves its purity. It, it makes us happy because it's, it's always a voluntary choice. So friendship kind of doesn't get treated as well, but it's, it is so, so powerful. And, and that's one of the reasons because we can walk away at any time. Hmm. Any thoughts on why we maybe take friendship for granted as opposed to our other relationships? I, I think because we can. You know, I mean, like I said, there's there are consequences, you know, for not dealing with your boss properly, not dealing with your spouse properly, not dealing with your children. You know, it, so we we have contractual uh, or pseudo contractual obligations to, you know, so many other of the players in our lives. And once people get into their 30s, you get busy, you know, and so so maintaining friendships has to be very deliberate on our part. And once we get busy, you know, sometimes that's, that's often too much to ask. So, so something I talk about is the fact that we need to build friendship support into our schedule. And rather than trying to always schedule something with our friends, which is going to fall by the wayside, uh, a Notre Dame study of 8 million phone calls showed that, you know, touching base every two weeks is what sustained uh, friendships. So what we need to do is basically look at the things we're already doing and try and get something on the calendar, have a ritual, have a habit, you know, do you meet your friends? Do you exercise together? Do you always have lunch on Saturdays, having something that's pre built in the schedule, so we don't have to deliberately think about it. That can be a good way to support to keep a friendship going without having to always be like so rigorously cognizant of it. Hmm. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, so much of this book is built around, you know, uh, sayings about friendship that um, that in, that in many cases you go, I'm not quite sure that it's like this. And I would, I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on what has led to a lot of these different beliefs. Do you think, um, just infiltrating, you know, our, our own thoughts about friendship and love and marriage and different relationships? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not clear on the question. Well, I, I, I guess I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what has led to some of these, um, you know, one one of the things that you say uh, in the book or one of the things that you evaluate is, you know, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. And so just things like that, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on like what made stuff like that become so sticky in our um, culture. Uh, I mean, I'd be totally speculating because mm -hmm. each, each of these each of these maxims, you know, has their own origins. But I think. You know, often every culture has its values and, you know, and it, and it promotes the ideas that support those values. So that's why, like I said, I think we need to go down the scientific rabbit hole because, you know, these, these maxims didn't always originate from deep truth and insight. Sometimes they're, they're, they are, you know, indeliberate propaganda, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, when these phrases originated, we didn't have the science, you know, we didn't know the truth. Like for instance, with don't judge a book by its cover, you know, the research shows that we instantaneously start evaluating people and making judgments about them subconsciously within milliseconds. So like that maxims, you know, if you take it strictly is fundamentally impossible. You know, that said, there's still plenty of things we can learn. Like what I talk about is in the end, we, we need to not, you know, to say, don't judge, that's impossible. You know, we're going to do it. What we need to do is be better about revising our judgments, about making them more accurate, about stress testing them. Because for instance, with first impressions, 
first impressions are actually surprisingly accurate in many cases. Roughly 70% of the time when we size somebody up, we're pretty accurate. There's plenty of research on thin slicing. But that said, 70% is not 100%. So we, we don't want to immediately go with our gut in every situation because three out of 10 times, we're probably going to be wrong. You know, we want to be a little bit more cognizant of the judgments we're making and then, you know, really stress test them and be a little bit more deliberate about it rather than just immediately going with whatever our first reaction is all the time. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what you've learned and even what you discovered through your own research of dealing with that tension of we have our first impressions and you know what you're saying is, you know, 70% of the time that we're right, but we're wrong 30%. And so just dealing with that tension between, um, I guess, judging and holding our judgments loosely, because people might not be what we expect them to be. Absolutely. And what you see is that if, if we, if we judge somebody negatively, and then don't spend any more time with them, you know, then we they never get a chance to like, correct our beliefs, correct our judgments. So what it really comes down to is we need to first and foremost be a little bit more you know active and aware our, our brains are designed for fuel efficiency which is a diplomatic way of saying they're a little, little bit lazy at times uh what what the research shows is that on first dates people are actually you know much better at evaluating people and people reading and that's because there are stakes there's something to be gained there's something to be lost you know but when we approach things very casually our brains can be a little lazy and we can we can rush to judgment so when we hold ourselves a little bit more accountable, you know, if we sit back and we say, what if, what if I was evaluating this person to decide whether they got the death penalty or not, you know, then, oh, geez, hold on a second. I would want to take a second. I wouldn't, I wouldn't immediately go with a snap judgment, you know, so if we hold ourselves accountable, if we think a little bit more about it, if we recognize the judgments that we're making and then attempting to, to test them rather than just assuming that they're correct. You know, these, these can really help us. And like I said, giving people a second chance is really critical because if somebody's having a bad day and you decide never to see them again based on a first impression, then they can't correct you. You know, so our, our positive first impressions are always going to end up being more accurate simply because we're giving people more chances. And that gives us more chances to realize that they, they are pretty good or they're not so good. So, you know, we want to hold ourselves accountable and we want to give people second chances. And by the second and, and by the same token, the other thing we want to think about is the double edged sword of first impressions is that, like I said, 70% accuracy, pretty good. Mm -hmm. However, the problem with first impressions is that they tend to stick with us. You know, is that once when, once we've made up our minds, our brain moves into confirmation bias mode. And rather than testing, we, we, we try to support what we already believe. So what we need to do is think about that when we're making first impressions, that whatever first impression we make is probably going to stick with the person. So we, we, we don't want to be, at least in some circumstances, we don't want to be too casual about that because people are going to remember that first impression. One of the things that shocked me the most as I was going through the book is you talk about uh, active listen. You talk about active listening in there, and specifically that it doesn't work in some relationships, which uh, which very much surprised me. And I would just love to hear um, kind of you just unpack that a little bit more about why why it doesn't work and what can an alternative be to that. Well, it it can work in some circumstances, but not in many of the circumstances it's often recommended for. Uh, I did training with the NYPD hostage negotiation team, and they use active listening, and they use it very, very effectively. But it was actually the hostage negotiators who told me. They were like, don't try and use this at home with your spouse. And I was like, what? 
And then I looked at the research because I, I had seen so much stuff for, you know, uh, marital arguments and stuff like that, recommending active listening. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised when they said it. But when I dove deeper into the research, uh, John Gottman, who's probably the leading researcher on marriage and love, he found that the, the, the theoretically active listening is a great idea. The only problem is that, you know, for hostage negotiators, for therapists, they're a third party. They're not the person being accused, you know, of the problems. When you're a third party, active listening can be very effective. But when somebody's pointing a finger in your face, yelling at you, accusing you, most people can't execute it properly. Most people get too defensive. They get too upset. They get too angry to, you know, to start summarizing and they can't do it. So the issue is that, like I said, for third parties can be very effective in a marital yeah. dispute. It's, it's generally, it's generally not something that most people can do successfully and consistently. Yeah. So I, I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on, so what, 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 or what might be a good alternative to that? Like in the, in the heat of the moment, you know, active listening probably isn't going to work. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how do you handle a situation like that? No, I mean, we should strive towards it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, but the, the issue is that most people are not going to be able to, to do it effectively. Most people are not going to be able to do most, you know, scripted formal systems appropriately in the heat of the moment, you know, so what is really critical is to, to try your best, but just to realize that you're not going to be able to push out this, this scripted formal, you know, discussion, you know, in the heat of the moment, the, really the key thing you know, is, as Gottman talks about, avoiding the four biggest problems that people have in relationship discussions. And those are criticism, you know, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. Criticism is when you make the problem personal. Defensiveness is when you respond to accusations with your own accusations. Stonewalling is when, you know, somebody raises an issue and you just shut down, stop responding and tune out. And contempt is when you see the other person as less than you. These are the things that Gottman found 83.3% of the time lead to divorce. But we can also do something called repair because the truth is every relationship has a little bit of those. It does happen. We need to focus on even in the midst of a conversation, trying to lighten it up, trying to tell a joke, hold their hand in a romantic relationship to try and repair any mistakes we make because any formal system, unless you do this for a living, it's going to break down. You know, it's, it's going to have problems. We need to focus on avoiding those big four and trying to repair any, any damage that we do do. Hmm. What surprised you the most in, you know, your research about relationships? What was the, the thing or the couple of things that just, you know, shocked you? Uh, one of the big things was the fact that, you know, lonely people actually don't spend any less time on average with others than non-lonely people do. And this is research by John Cacioppo, and it was kind of shocking because we think, oh, geez, well, if you're lonely, you should spend more time with others. But the issue is loneliness is a subjective experience. We've all felt lonely in a crowd. Well, if just being proximate to other people fixes loneliness, then we should never feel lonely in a crowd. But we do, because loneliness isn't just about being geographically close to people. 
Loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. So if you have people around you and you don't feel close to them, you don't feel like it's a meaningful connection, then it, it, it doesn't really help all that much to have other people around you. The funny thing was, I looked at the research and Faye Alberti at University of York, she found that basically in all the literature she could look at, for the most part, loneliness you know, largely didn't exist before the 19th century. Again, something that kind of blew me away. You hear the word lonely, but before the 19th century, it just meant something that was isolated. It didn't have that negative emotional valence. And that's because before the 19th century, largely, you know, we were embedded in religions, communities, nations. We felt like we were part of a group, part of a family, because before then, you couldn't survive without being part of a network. Now we are much more autonomous, much more self-sufficient, but that also means that we're not as tightly embedded in these bigger groups. And that's led to kind of an explosion of, of loneliness, you know, even pre-pandemic. So it was really shocking to me that, like I said, loneliness in many ways is a pretty new thing. And that just being near other people, that's not enough. We actually need to deepen our relationships rather than merely being close to others physically. Can you talk about that deepening of relationships and what can help lead us more towards that? Yeah, I talk about this in the friendship section that I looked at all the all the work by Dale Carnegie, which surprisingly, you know, most of it held up under the under the scrutiny of research. Uh, the only thing Carnegie got wrong was he said we should see things from another, the other person's perspective. And Nicholas Epley at University of Chicago found that actually we're pretty terrible at this. We you end up making bad assumptions, and it actually makes us worse at connecting with others. The problem with Carnegie's work is that it's only good for the beginning of a relationship for for mm -hmm. when you first meet someone. To deepen a relationship, we need to focus on more costly signals. We basically need to do stuff that's a little bit harder for, for you know, it's not as easy to do. And that, that difficulty shows that we're invested. It shows we care. And the two big costly signals are time and vulnerability. Time is always scarce. If I spend an hour with you every day, I can't do that with more than 24 people you know, a day. Yeah. Simply put, I can't. So, so time is a powerful signal. And research shows time is the thing friends argue about the most. The mm -hmm. second thing is vulnerability, which is opening up, you know, is telling people your fears, your weaknesses. Because by doing that, we show someone that we trust them. We show we're telling people things that could be used against us. And that's really powerful. And if we can't do that in a friendship or in any relationship, we're, we're not going to feel safe. We're not going to feel like we can open up. And what Diego Gambetta found in his studies is that this actually, by opening up and sharing scary details, this produces trust. By trusting the other person, they're very often likely to reciprocate and trust you more. Arthur Aaron did research asking people a series of, having people ask each other a series of questions. And... What he found was that when people went deeper, this is what produced basically the effective equivalent of a lifelong friendship in only 45 minutes by people opening up, answering these deep questions. People felt really close. In fact, the two researchers under him who first did the study ended up getting married. So, you know, you, you want to open up, talk about those tough things, raise those scary subjects. Because this, this tells people, I trust you. Look, here's something that um, it might not be safe for me to say, but that is not that doesn't say, oh, I trust you. It demonstrates it, which is far more powerful. Mm -hmm. 
any anything else in the research that just really shocked or surprised you? I mean, what really surprised me was that in a lot of people think that in marriage, you know, after a while, they don't want to argue, they don't want to fight, they they get scared that if they raise issues that they're they're going to that that's going to end the relationship. But the truth is, uh, shouting matches only end a relationship 40% of the time. What ends most uh, marriages is bottling up is not talking, because that ends up compounding is we end up and instead of having a conversation with the other person, we are having a conversation with ourselves. And we start making negative assumptions about what they did, what their intentions were. John Gottman has a funny quip where he says, uh, you know, if you're in a long-term relationship and you've never had a big fight, please do that immediately. <laughs> you know, you, you, you need to talk. And yes, there, there's going to be arguments, but the truth is that more often than arguing, you know, concealing things, not raising issues. If you raise it, you can solve it. You can discuss it. You can come to a resolution. Gottman found that 69% of the time, the ongoing marital issues, the things you argue about time and time again, 69% of the time, they never get resolved. Now, some people might find that depressing, but that was true of unhappy and happy relationships. You know, a happy marriage is not about resolving every conflict. It's about regulating the conflict. It's about bringing it up, discussing it, and maybe you can find a solution that honors both of your values. But if you don't bring things up, very often, you know, our perceptions, our judgments turn negative. And after a while, he calls it negative sentiment override, is basically you can, you can start to assume that your spouse doesn't care or, you know, oh, you know, you know, they, they didn't take the trash out, so therefore they don't love me. We start making assumptions, and those can be even deadlier than arguments. Mm. Yeah, just while you were talking, it just made me think of the role that expectations can play in yeah. relationships as well. Um, and even just how much of what you were even saying about the 69% of like even helping understand or just realize, hey, this is not something that we're probably ever going to resolve, um, just seems so helpful in it. I mean, just to know that, like, you don't have to get to zero. Yeah. The, the biggest thing, uh, you know, Gottman found that what what really determines the happiness of a relationship isn't reducing the raw amount of negative. It was actually the ratio of positive to negative. Because we all know couples who, you know, fight and argue all the time and can still have happy relationships. And that's because as long as the good outweighs the bad, you can have a happy relationship. If you think about only reducing the negative, that doesn't mean you're going to be happy. That just might get it to neutral. You know, I, I have a not negative relationship with every stranger on this planet. That That's not love, you know. <laughs> so what we need to think more about is often increasing the positive. Shelley Gable at UCSB found that, you know, often how a couple celebrates is more important to the relationship than how they fight. So doing exciting, fun things with your partner is really critical and can be far more important than always trying to reduce the negative, some of which you will never eliminate. Hmm. One of the things uh, that you that you talk about in there is how uh, individualism has affected our relationships as well. And I would be curious to hear uh, from you, are, are there any like... I don't know if I have a good word for it, but types of movements or types of things like individualism that you see having an effect on relationships just in general over the past, you know, several years or even today? 
I mean, I, you know, I think what's really critical is the individualism itself is mm-hmm. that before then, like I said, before the 19th century, it just wasn't really an option. You couldn't really mm-hmm. survive on your own. Now we have so much autonomy and, you know, we're a little bit lazy. You know, it's often easier to go on Instagram than to go out, get dressed, shower, get in the car and go see friends. And so we're kind of settling for these lesser relationships. Robert Putnam at Harvard studied uh, what's called parasocial relationships. And he found through the 20th century, you know, because in the 1950s, we used to always hear about bowling leagues and the Elk Lodge and all these kind of groups that it just seems like archaic now. And he realized that the, the death of those groups throughout the late 20th century was largely due to television was that basically we replaced our social time with the parasocial relationship of characters on TV. And now very often in the 21st century, we're replacing a lot of face-to-face or group contact with social media. Now, I don't wanna be one of those people who acts like social media is evil and awful, but the issue is you probably, you know, you, you have a set amount of time that you go to work, you have a set amount of time that you sleep. There's a certain budget you have every day for social time and often, we have the choice between, you know, spending some of that on social media, spending that on face-to-face, spending that, spend that time with a group. So is social media evil? I don't think it's evil, but if it is stealing more of the budget from deeper connections beyond Instagram and TikTok, then it can be a problem because all of a sudden you're, you're replacing a good meal with kind of snack food and it's, it doesn't lead to healthy things. They found across the board that It's just not the same. When you look at people who are on online support groups for health and mental health issues, online support groups don't, you know, don't counter depression. People who met face to face for those group times, you know, they found zero of them were depressed yet. Depression was a serious problem for online forums. You know, we, we need those deeper connections that social media offers. And we have to be careful that social media doesn't cannibalize, you know, our face to face time. It almost makes me think that like social media might be like a, like a good introduction thing or like a good connector, but at some point it does have to come offline. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? That's, I mean, that, that's a great way to use it. You know, I talk about that in the book in the, in the sense that, you know, if you're using Facebook and Instagram, you know, to set up a time to meet face to face, then, you know, social media is an unadulterated good. But if you, but often we use it to replace it, not deliberately, mm. not deliberately, but if those hours are being used for, you know, time on your phone versus time face to face, then like I said, we're, we're replacing something with, you know, with a, with a far less, you know, nu- nutritious, uh, social aspect to it. Mm. Yeah. It, it even got me thinking about what we, what we were talking about earlier with, um, you know, as you get older and, you know, you get married and you start having kids and the schedule starts filling up and we and we start putting off some of those relationships and maybe unintentionally uh we replace it with you know instagram or we replace it with uh with facebook Hmm. you just got me thinking a whole lot on that no absolutely and and what the research shows is that after seven years 50 percent of close friends aren't close friends anymore you know Mm -hmm. so we forget that if we ignore relationships, uh, they go away. And, you know, this, this does happen. Sure, there's always that friend who we get back together with and it's just like old times, uh, but those are the ones we remember. What we forget are the ones we forgot. And so, you know, we need, if these things are important, we really need to be a little bit more, more conscious of it 
because again, that, that individualism, you know, we're, 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 we're not getting what we need. What you see is that when they do fMRI studies of of lonely people, their brains scan for threats twice as fast. Basically, you know, it is hardwired into us that we are social creatures. And when we feel like we don't have connections, when we feel like people aren't looking out for us, you know, at a much more fundamental emotional level, our brain is worried. Our brain feels like if something goes wrong, help isn't coming. This is, you know, a fundamental aspect of it. But I, I don't think like if you don't if you don't eat for a while, you will know I need to eat. And if you don't have, you know, water, you will want water. But I think with these social things, we feel sad, we feel anxious, but we don't always know why. There's just this underlying hum of anxiety. And like I said, you see in lonely people at the neuroscience level, their brain starts scanning for threats because they feel like they're on their own. So we need to address this by, you know, not only seeing people, but like I said, deepening those relationships so that even if we're physically away, we know people are thinking of us and are looking out for us. Mm. I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned the friendships tend to fall off after seven years. Any uh, insight into why the seven year mark? I mean, I think that was just where they saw the the biggest drop. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure after seven yeah. years, there's more and before seven years, there's yeah, more. Yeah, but yeah. like at that point, you see a 50% yeah. drop. No, gotcha. No, I, I was just curious uh, just if there was anything to the timing there. Um, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is uh, you talk about narcissism in the book as well and how that plays out in relationships and, and would just love your thoughts on uh, and how how to um, identify maybe like stealth narcissism because, you know, sometimes it doesn't always um, sometimes it's easy to spot and sometimes it isn't easy to spot. No, it you know, it can be difficult. I mean, we, we, it could be, you know, it could be difficult at times, but the, the issue with narcissism is that it's, if somebody is at the clinical level, if somebody is very much, uh, you know, dealing with narcissistic personality disorder, the answer is pretty straightforward. And that is, you know, get away from them, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, plain, plain and simple. And the, the thing is that, you know, what they found with the research is that most people are reluctant to do this you know, is that they, they feel bad or they feel guilty that we have more ability to get away from toxic people than we think. And yet we are often reluctant to do it. And this is something that's on us that we're accountable for. We, we need to step away, you know, however, there are some people who are, you know, they have narcissistic tendencies, but they're not at the clinical level. And I talk about in the book, some things we can do to try and help these people. And, you know, because it's not that they utterly lack empathy, it's kind of that their empathy muscle is weak. So Craig Malkin talks about using what's called empathy prompts. And that is if we express similarity, if we express vulnerability, if we express community, these are things that can help them kind of reactivate that empathy muscle, you know, but granted, like I said, this doesn't always work. And what's effective here to your point is that these are also effective litmus tests. If you're expressing, you know, similarity, if you're expressing vulnerability, expressing community, and they're just still being selfish, aggressive, these are people who are probably too far gone to help. And with those kind of people, what we need to do is focus on the two Bs, that's boundaries and bargaining. It has to become a trans totally transactional relationship. Like I said, if you can get away from them, fine, but there are times where we can't. They could be family members. They could be people we have to deal with at work. 
And for that, it has to become a transactional relationship because otherwise these people are going to try and take advantage of us. Uh, a quote that really resonated with me in this book uh, about popularity that you say is popularity is a good thing, but as a culture, we're choosing the wrong kind, opting for status, power, and fame over being likable. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that is what what do you think it looks like to choose to be more likable? I mean, you know, Basically, when it comes to issues of popularity, the research shows there are two kinds, you know, status, which you mentioned, and then likability. Status is, you know, somebody we see as being influential. Think of the, the cool, famous people or the cool kids in high school. But you can achieve status by some pretty unsavory means like bullying and stuff like that. We don't, we don't necessarily like bullies, but we, we respect their power. And we all have this desire for status. It works at a very fundamental level. Likeability is basically warmth. Likeability is not the people who are jockeying to be cool or number one or win the argument. They're the people that we feel comfortable around, who are warm, supportive, kind, you know, and that's really what we should seek out. The people who focus on status, there's been a lot of research showing that 10 years out, they're not very happy, you know, that they're, again, they're powerful, but it's it's not a path to long-term fulfillment versus the people who achieve a level of popularity and are happy and have good relationships are the likable people, the warm people. And unfortunately, what the research also found, this is work by Mitch Brinstein, is that there's not a lot of overlap. Usually people who are big on status are not quite as good at being likable and the people who are likable <laughs> are not very focused on status. So we want to seek out those people who are warm, kind and supportive, not those people who are always jockeying to be number one. Uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, the book has been out uh, for a little bit now and you've done, uh, you know, so many interviews, I'm sure about this book. Um, and I would be curious to hear from you. What is something in the book that from your perspective is not getting um, as much attention as you wish it would be? Because it's pretty important. I mean, some of the community aspects and popularity aspects you were just as discussing. Hmm. The no man is an island uh, maxim, that that chapter, I think a lot more people are focused on, uh, you know, love and reading other people, a little bit of friendship, yeah. but I don't think people are discussing the community aspects as much. And we, we really, we really need that. We're really lacking that, you know, loneliness is at epidemic proportions, uh, especially post pandemic. And this is something that is really fundamental. You know, we are a social social species and we need to feel that connection. And what I was surprised to see is that that connection usually always comes down to a story, a story we tell ourselves about who we are, our identity, the connections that we have to other people. And sometimes that can be used to exclude others. And that in that case, we need more stories, you know, because we don't have to say, that, oh, that person's not like me, that person's the opposite of me. We can connect on many different grounds. You know, we can, we can have many things in common. We can both have grown up in the same state. We could both be the same religion. We could both be Star Wars fans. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can find similarity, find a, a common story that you can connect with with people. You know, the, the, the world has narrowed a bit in terms of these issues, and we need to find more ways to connect, not fewer. Hmm. Any other uh, 
you know, you were mentioning loneliness and community, anything else that stands out about it that you want to talk about? I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I think we covered most of the, the big mm-hmm. points that, you know, that I think, but it's really that issue of finding community because what people, often people think I'm going to spend time with, with friends and, you know, that's great, but friends and community, there's, there's, there's a synergy to community. A 20, a study that came out in 2020 actually showed this really well is that basically if you have five friends, you're going to feel pretty supportive. Uh, but if, if your friends know each other, that leads to you feeling more support, more happiness, because Mm -hmm. there's a synergy that comes with community. If you have five friends who don't know each other, that's like a hub and spoke type relationship. But when your friends are all connected, now they can talk and they can say, Hey, he's feeling kind of down. Why don't we, you know, throw a party? Why don't we do something for him? Now they can coordinate. Now by connecting your friends, you've created a tribe of sorts and you can work together at a higher level. There's a synergy there that doesn't come from just one-on-one relationships. And this is something I think we forget about that there's a power in groups that really doesn't exist on a, on a one-on-one level. And we could probably use more of that right now. Yeah. That got me thinking of people who are community builders and, you know, sometimes that's a job and sometimes that's the, the role of a person in a group of, of friends, or even, even could be a family member, uh, or a a specific family member in, in a family unit. Um, any thoughts or any, any more thoughts on like that type of community building of, of almost someone being the initiator in that? Well, I mean, as I talked about my first book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, is that, you know, that some people are definitely really good at this. They're, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, either through natural ability uh, or through hard work, some people do act as the hubs of a network. And if we're looking for business contacts or, you know, for potential new friends and communities, there are what the research calls super connectors. Basically, if you look through your contact list on your phone, you're going to realize that a disproportionate number of the people you know were introduced to you by a handful of people or a handful of Mm -hmm. scenarios or situations. So if you're trying to reach out, if you're trying to connect with other people, um, to reach out to those people, those super connectors, that is a much better use of your time because it's just going to be much more effective and efficient because those are the people that are at the center of the network with more connections than people who might be at the edge of the network with fewer connections. So if you, if you look down your contact list, find those people who are disproportionately responsible for introducing you to others. That's where you want to start when you're trying to, to be involved in a group, a community, you know, or even business networking, because that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Two are the things I want to ask you about, but before that, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we talk about? I mean, I think we're doing pretty good. Okay, cool. Um, you you have this uh, quote uh, towards the end. I think it's towards the end of the book. I can't actually. I can't even remember exactly where it is, but I know it's in the book. Uh, and you say everyone asks how you got together. Nobody asks how you stayed together, and it's the latter that is often the real achievement to be proud of. And I would be curious to hear of what are some of the things, you know, whether it be in a marriage or a friendship or a family or whatever that is, uh, that you have seen or the, the commonalities or patterns that you see, uh, or that have come up about people who stay together in relationship or in friendship with each other. 
No, I mean, I think, I think there's some of the things we've discussed where it's like in friendships, you know, touching base every two weeks is that Notre Dame study found is, you know, is, is something that's really critical. It's these, we're, we're not going to change our fundamental personalities. What we can change is our behaviors. We can change what we do. And in terms of marriages, like I said, those four critical things, you know, not doing, not, not, crit, not doing criticism, stonewalling you know, defensiveness, you know, contempt. These are the things, these are the patterns, because I'm, I'm not, you know, looking at my personal life here, I'm looking at the research and they're, yeah. they've got much bigger sample sizes than I have. Yeah. And those are the things that people maintain over the long haul that support these relationships. Hmm. Uh, just as we're closing, I would, I would love to hear from you. What's uh, a couple of things just that you discovered through the through the research that you've started doing and started implementing that has made a big difference in your life? A vulnerability, you know, it's not it's not something I've ever been very good at, and just opening up, saying the scary thing, it really makes a difference, you know. Especially when, like I said, you haven't been very good at it. People are surprised, and they see another facet of you. They see another aspect of you. And for people that care about you, that's really powerful. You know, people realize when you're sharing something, that's you know a little bit, you know, difficult, a little bit scary. It's 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 an enormous, you know gift of trust to say that to someone. And I've seen a big difference, whereas I've been reluctant, I think we all are. Uh, but psychology has shown what they call the beautiful mess effect, where we often get very scared that if we say vulnerable things that people are going to, you know, think less of us. And the truth is, you know, when, when other people reveal things, we're not as judgmental. But yet when it's us, when it's our turn, we get scared that everybody else is going to respond differently. But what we find is that, like I said, when other people do it, we respond well. And usually when you do it, other people will respond well. We, we don't need to be as scared of opening up uh, as we, we often think we do. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. I know that people are going to you know, want to keep up with you, get the book, plays well with others. Uh, where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Uh, the book is available on Amazon and everywhere else, uh, plays well with others. My first book is Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And uh, people can keep up to date with the research I'm looking at on how to live a better life if they go to ericbarker.org, which is E-R-I-C-B-A-R-K-E-R.org. Awesome. Well, actually, I, I do have one last thing. I, I would be curious to hear what's, what's a piece of research that is just uh, capturing your attention or imagination right now. Uh, right now. You know, like I said, I've been pretty, been pretty obsessed with, I've been pretty obsessed with the the book, and yeah. you know, that's 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 really the the research that <laughs> that comes to light. But one thing that you know, another thing that shocked me in the book was that um, you know, just how poor we are at reading the thoughts and feelings of others. You know, uh, you know, with with strangers, we only accurately read their thoughts and feelings twenty percent of the time. With friends, we hit thirty percent. And with spouses, we top out at 35%. So whatever you think your spouse is thinking, two thirds of the time, you're wrong. You know, we need to work a little bit harder and we need to try and elicit stronger signals from the other person because we're generally not that good at detecting the thoughts and feelings of others. Yet the research consistently shows that despite being bad at it, we're extremely confident about our judgments. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, well, Eric, thanks again for being on the podcast. Ed, thanks for doing the work. Uh, thank you.
so there's several things that have got me thinking since that conversation with Eric. And I think probably the biggest thing is this idea that friendship is what gets often underestimated the most in our lives is that we tend to look at uh, the other relationships in our lives, whether that be with a partner or significant other or our family or, you know, kids or, or whatever that might look like. And we just blow past the fact that we need friends. And this is something that I've been uh, thinking about as well. And not necessarily uh, needing more friends because I... I, I feel like I'm I'm pretty good. I have I have a lot of great friends that um, that are very supportive and there for me. However, one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about is just that we all have different uh, longings in our life, and some of those longings can only met be in certain types of relationships. You know, maybe we have a, a longing for being in a romantic relationship or we have a longing to have uh, a a mentor or a a parental figure or someone who is more of a guide in our life or maybe it is that longing to have a friend and realizing that you can have people who fall into one of those categories and maybe be missing out of one of those and you can still feel that sense of longing that having an abundance of friends doesn't necessarily make up for having a lack of a of a of a guide role or of a parental role or or maybe even uh kids in that or having uh that role filled through a romantic relationship and so just living with these longings and i I guess going back to the original thought of just friendship and how that can get overlooked and undervalued and underappreciated and as i mentioned we all have those long and you know this is this is something that i've been thinking about you know for for a long time but just how lonely people are and that even feeds into what i was talking about with the longings is that we could feel loneliness even whenever we have other people that you can still experience that sense of loneliness because that longing isn't fulfilled in your life and again whatever longing that might be and i think another thing that really stood out to me is that active active listening not uh, working in relationships, you know, as I, I mentioned in the interview, that's something that I've been trying to get a lot better at, at active listening. And so it's like, oh, okay, you know, sometimes that doesn't work and sometimes that doesn't work as well. And the last thing that I want to say is just that idea of, you know, and he, he quotes it in the book that, or actually he doesn't quote it in the book, he says it in the book, and I'm quoting him. Everyone asks how you got together. Nobody asks how you stayed together. And it's the latter that is often the real achievement to be proud of. And just realizing of how true that can be in just all areas of life and in all relationships as well. That idea of if we want to learn how to be in relationship really well with people, we should be looking to people who have been in relationships for a really long time 
and not just romantic relationships, which I think can sometimes be the default, but in friendships as well, or uh, the, the parental relationship, seeing that in, uh, for people who have great relationships with their kids and have had it, you know, from uh, maybe, maybe it wasn't, you know, from the beginning or, or whatever it is, but they have just had great relationships and just paying attention and learning to them and what led to those as well. So those are a few things that I'm thinking about. I would love to hear from you and some of the things that you are thinking about or learning from as well. Or you, if you have stuff that you would love us to cover on the podcast as well, the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you there. And I think that's all that I have for today. As I mentioned, uh, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and write a review of the podcast. We'll be having uh, more bonus episodes just throughout the summer coming as well as a little summer treat. And so that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Eric for being on the podcast as well. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We are also very close to three episode 300, which got a special uh, episode of that coming up here very soon. And yeah, that's all that I have for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.